Trinity Harbor Church offers the following audio recording as a ministry without charge or legal restriction. We're located in downtown Rockwall, Texas, serving the greater Northeast Dallas area. For more information, visit us online at trinityharborchurch.com. Our prayer is that by this message, you will encounter the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles or in your worship guide to Numbers chapter 16. We're in a sermon series in which we're considering the mission of God and our participation in that very mission. And we're going to, um, Numbers 16 is a long chapter. It tells one, one story, but we're breaking it up in the interest of time. And I'll try to fill in some of those gaps as we proceed throughout the sermon. Uh, but if, you'll, uh, if you're able, I'll ask you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Now Korah, the son of Ishar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, and Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, all known men, well-known men. The assembly, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face, and he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning the Lord will show who is his, and who is holy, and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers. Korah and all his company put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow, and the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, the sons of Levi. Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him, and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you? And would you seek the priesthood also? Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? And Moses sent to call Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and they said, We will not come up. Is it a small thing that you have brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. And Moses was very angry and said to the Lord, Do not respect their offering. I have not taken one donkey from them, and I have not harmed one of them. And as the story proceeds, God executes judgment, and the 250 men are uh, swallowed up by fire, and the families of Abiram and Dathan are swallowed up by the earth. And we resume in verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. When the congregation had assembled against Moses and against Aaron, they turned toward the tent of meeting. And behold, the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. And Moses and Aaron came to the front of the tent of meeting. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from the midst of this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said to Aaron, 
Take your censer and put fire on it from off the altar and lay incense on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people. And he put on the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. Now those who died in the plague were 14,700, besides those who died in the affair of Korah. And Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance of the tent of meeting, where the plague was stopped. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. In our sermon series on mission, what we're doing is, for two weeks, we're taking one clause out of our mission statement, which is on the front of your worship guide, and we're focusing on that clause. And for one week, we're taking a negative example, what it means to not engage that clause. And then for the next week, we're taking a positive example of what it means to actually engage that clause. And the clause that we begin considering today is growing in community. The nature of community, why it is important, and of course, as you could probably guess, listening to the story, this is a negative example of what it means to not participate in growing in community. And what is almost always at the um, the axe that is laid at the root of community is selfishness. Sometimes today in our culture, we, we whitewash uh, selfishness by calling it individualism. There's a very interesting quote from Alexis de Tocqueville about individualism. If you remember that name from high school, and most preachers would say, you can't possibly start a sermon with a quote from someone like de Tocqueville. But you're a thoughtful bunch, and so I think we can pull it off this morning. And what I want to point up to you is that de Tocqueville was one of the first to realize that the American experiment took individualism to a new level. In the history of the world prior to America, you have really what's existing in Europe are aristocracies, and people are more born into a certain position, and they understand their relationship to the culture in which they're born. I fit into this system. I relate to society in this way. But when you have the American experiment, which is more the foremost meritocracy in the history of the world, no longer are you born to a certain place. It is the belief that you can aspire to what you are capable of and will work hard at, And as a result of that, no longer do you understand yourself fitting society or coming along and investing in society in a certain way. Really, everything now is understood in how it relates to you, how it equips you, how it moves your story forward. That's a big shift. And this is what de Tocqueville wrote, mid-1800s. Individualism is a novel expression. It's new. To which a novel idea has given birth. Our fathers were only acquainted with egoism. Which, by which he means selfishness. So selfishness is an old problem. Selfishness is a passionate and exaggerated love of self, which leads a man to connect everything with himself and to prefer himself to everything in the world. Individualism is a mature and calm feeling, which disposes each member of the community to sever himself from the mass of his fellows and to draw apart with his family and his friends, so that after he has thus formed a little circle of his own, He willingly leaves society at large to itself. Selfishness originates in blind instinct. Individualism proceeds from erroneous judgment more than from depraved feelings. It originates as much in deficiencies of mind as in perversity of heart. Pretty outstanding quote. What is Tocqueville really saying? He's saying, listen, with the American experiment and this commitment to individualism, we don't have this old problem of selfishness anymore. We now have a problem 
in which selfishness is essentially institutionalized, right? Everything is seen as from the perspective of the individual, and that's the story that matters the most over the story of the society in which one exists. Very interesting insight, but is de Tocqueville right? Is this how things have played out? Well, there's a fascinating, blow-your-mind fascinating new tool from Google, which you have uh, may have noticed in the past few weeks has come out as they continue to take over the world. It's called the Ngram Viewer. And so Google is digitizing all of the books in print from the last 200 years in the United States and in Great Britain. That's pretty amazing. Now, because much of that material is copyrighted, they can't hand it out for free. But there's nothing that prevents them from putting it all into a database that you can search. So you can now go on the Ngram Viewer. You can type in any word or any phrase, and it automatically produces you a chart over the last 200 years of English usage of that word or phrase. Pretty fascinating. So you go on, for example, and I typed in Bob Hope. So Bob Hope, nothing throughout the 1800s. You hit uh, late 30s, early 40s. It spikes through the 40s. He dips down for the next few decades, and then he spikes again in the late 70s and early to mid 80s. And so it shows you the usage. In, all, in the database currently, it's searching 5 billion words. About less than a second, right? Pops up the results. So, this is, uh, social scientists are very excited about this because you can track certain social movements, the usage of words, the usage of phrases. And so already certain studies are coming out because this has been available to academics for a little while. Um, and some of the things that they're finding are pretty fascinating. And one of the things that they're finding is that indeed, over the last hundred years, there's reasons to believe that just based on our usage of language, we're becoming far more selfish. Here's some of the observations that have been made. Researchers found an increase in the use of words like choose and get in the past two centuries, while words like obliged and give decreased. It was also found that words that indicate a growing focus on the self uh, such as child, unique, individual, and self, all increased in use. So I experimented a little bit, and it was, it was very interesting, the results. If I typed in something like self-fulfillment, it looks like you're climbing a mountain. So 1800s through 1950, you hit 1960, 1970, goes, purpose in life, same thing, nothing, um, Things that, that refer to the self uh, all are exploding at the at the end of this diagram. But then I started to insert different words: sin, grace, repentance, charity. It's the exact opposite. Mountain in 1800s, pretty good until 1950, and then it goes like this. So the usage of language is demonstrating to us what we're talking about, what's being written about, what's popular. What, what demands or what commands our attention? And we have to realize, Russell, that the, the ongoing story in our culture is one of, of significant uh, individualism and even more particular of, of profound and gross selfishness. And the reason I make this point at the outset is that if this is the narrative that's going on, if this is a story that surrounds us, then unless we are intentionally doing something to work against it, we will be swallowed by it. In fact, one of the very important subtexts of this entire sermon series is if you are not intentionally engaging the mission of God, then you are failing. 
It is something that has to be done intentionally. You can't sit back because everything around you is working against the mission of God. And unless you're intentionally organizing and prioritizing your life to participate in that mission, it's not going to happen. Just won't. You'll be swept up by the current. And so we work at intentionality. And today, particularly, we ask, why is that intentionality worthwhile in terms of community? Why is community better than individualism? And I want to highlight just three very broad reasons that perhaps you've thought about some of them or perhaps you haven't, but to remind us of why do we value community? In some ways, I think very much, as Zach alluded to, we would like for God to just interact with us individually. You know, me and Jesus over a cup of coffee, and I don't have to worry about what anyone else is doing. That would be a lot easier. Don't have to be compassionate and honest with all these people. It's just Jesus and me. And yet, that is decidedly not the way that God has done things. If we look to the very beginning, from the call of Abraham, God has chosen not really an individual, but a people. All the descendants of a particular individual. Um, what would become a massive nation. And the reason that God has chosen a nation is demonstrated in Exodus 19. Which reads, now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For the earth is mine, and you shall be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That's why Israel was called out to be God's representative of his holiness, of his uh, particularity to the rest of the world around them. This is why the people are established. That means that the holiness of God that Israel revealed could only be expressed through the holiness of the people. If you have a small part of the group that's holy and the rest are not holy, the image that it portrays to the rest of the world of God is hugely compromised. Just like if we were to tolerate sin today in the midst of our community, we would compromise the reputation of God. So again, we see that community is God's, um, it's his MO, right? To call a people, not not simply particular individuals that are unrelated. And in fact, if we were good to go into the New Testament, which we don't have time to do, almost every metaphor that describes the people of God in the New Testament is plural in its nature. That we all together make one bride of Christ. That we all together are uh, connected to Jesus and part of one vine. And so we have to understand that we're deeply connected to each other and why this is important. And I want to give you three reasons, relatively briefly. Number one, God himself is community. He is three in one. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit exist in the perfect community of three persons together. And therefore, if God is perfect, that he exists in community, existing in community must be a superior way of existing than existing individually. And I think that you know this far more than you think. If I were to actually think of an answer, what if I were to walk up to you right now and say, who are you? What would you say? Most of you, probably virtually without exception, would say, well, I'm a father, I'm a mother, I'm a brother, I'm a sister, I come from this land of people, I work with this group of people. In other words, by and large, you define yourself relationally in relation to other people. I mean, who would say, if you were asked, 
Who are you? Would you? I think, therefore, I am. People would be like, what? Or I am, uh, I'm 6'2 and 215 and bald. That's who I am. That would be a very odd way to describe myself, right? It would simply be facts. It doesn't actually tell you who I am because we tend to understand who we are uh, relationally. And this is, of course, because we were created to really exist in community, not only with God, but with one another. Of course, sin, selfishness, has corrupted that community. Second, being in community helps you to know Jesus better. How does that work? This was uh, most. This point was uh, best made by C.S. Lewis in a very famous passage in the Four Loves. C.S. Lewis was a, a academic and a writer, and he used to get together with a group of writers every Tuesday morning at a pub in Oxford called the Eagle and Child. And the group of writers that gathered there uh, referred to themselves as the Inklings in the 20s and 30s. And they would read their fiction to each other. And it included um, Charles Williams, who you may not have heard of, but it included Tolkien, uh, who you probably have heard of. And they would gather and they would read each other's works and give uh, feedback. And one of, the, one of the earlier Inklings to die was Charles Williams. And Lewis was... a was affected by the death and was was thinking about what that death meant to him and to his group of friends. And in reflection, this is what he wrote. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show on all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's, Ronald Tolkien, his reaction to a specifically uh, Caroline or Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. We possess each friend not less but more as the number of those with whom we share him increases. That's counterintuitive unless you begin to think about it. right? Lewis is saying you might think, Oh, well, Charles is dead. That's really sad. But now I have more of Ronald Tolkien to myself. And I'll celebrate that relationship. And Lewis says, no, the opposite is true. Because Charles is dead, I will never see the side of Ronald again that only Charles elicited. And therefore, I have less of Ronald as a result of Charles being gone. In your homes, you know, in my home, my daughter Charlotte elicits a part of my son Lewis that only Charlotte can elicit. And if Charlotte wasn't there, that side of Lewis would never be known. And you know this amongst your friends as well. But to to drive this point further, Tim Keller makes the point that if this is true of our relationships as human beings, how much more must this be true of our relationship with Jesus? Just as Lewis said, he he wasn't large enough to bring the whole man, Charles Williams, into, into action. We are not large enough to bring all of Jesus into action. When I, when I fellowship with, for example, Bill and Zach, Bill and Zach reveal to me aspects of Jesus that I don't see elsewhere because their stories are different. And Jesus has met them in slightly different ways. And so by engaging them and participating in fellowship and worship with them, I experience more of Jesus. They show me pieces of Jesus that I would not see otherwise. And that is why community is so desperately important. Because to only have an individual relationship with Jesus means that you would get a very small sliver of Jesus indeed. 
Third, why is community important? Community is essential because it is the only way you survive life. Sooner or later, something desperately sad or desperately hard is going to happen in your life. And if you think that you can just handle that without the love and affection and support of friends, then that is foolish. And you know, let's be frank, the people who are particularly hard-headed in this regard are men. Right? Many of the movies we love to watch and stories we love to hear are the tough guy who loses everything and goes on a quest single-handedly to defeat all of his enemies and is victorious at the end with only minimal losses. Right? That's our, that's our image of strength, but it is nothing more than a fantasy. And if you choose to live according to that fantasy, you have, there's very little difference between you and the five-year-old who puts on a cape and proceeds to jump down the stairs thinking he's Superman. And the the same consequences are what's going to happen. We desperately need one another. And if you don't think you need one another, then you're only in a season of life in which you've been allowed to delude yourself. And that season of life will eventually come to an end. So from start to finish, community is incredibly important for us. God represents it to us in His very being, His very existence. He calls us into being in community. We experience and know more of Jesus by virtue of being in community. And it is indeed, as we see over and over again in the New Testament, the very way by which we actually walk faithfully with Jesus. And yet, as we see that this comes from God and is forthright in Scripture, we have such a difficult time actually engaging in community. It's really, it's a flawed program. Over and over again, Israel will fail. Over and over again, The New Testament community will fail, and over and over again, the church has failed. So why is it so difficult? Why aren't we better at community? Well, there are a number of insights that come from our passage, and I want to uh, to run through them with you to see some of the selfishness that corrupts the community that God has intended for His people. In that sense, it's a very insightful passage. So in, we read through it kind of quickly, and it was a lot to gather. So the general gist, just in terms of review, is this. There's a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. Moses is the head honcho of Israel. His right-hand man and high priest, effectively, is Aaron. And there are three men, particularly Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, who are leading a rebellion against Moses and Aaron. They're tired of their authority being exercised the way it is. And that's where we are. And so we see this beginning. The first aspect of selfishness that breaks down community is jealousy. Look at verse 3 with me. After they have assembled their followers, the rebellers say to Moses and Aaron, You have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Listen, you're no better than us, Moses and Aaron. We're all on equal footing. We're all holy. We're all God's people. We're tired of your authority. It's time to make some changes. And what's interesting in one sense is that Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, they're correct. Right? We read it just a few moments ago, Exodus 19, which says, All of Israel is a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now granted, God has given greater authority to some, but they're actually using a scriptural truth 
kind of crowbarring it a little bit to argue for what they want to argue. It's kind of like, well, God has said he'd provide for my needs, so I believe he's going to move me to the better neighborhood. We use something that's a scriptural truth, but we, we arm wrestle a little bit to be what we want it to be. What drives the heart of this rebellion, where it all starts, is in this jealousy. And looking at their brothers, they're envious of the authority and the leadership that Moses and Aaron execute. They're tired of that leadership. And that jealousy continues to work against real growth of community in the nation of Israel. It's incredibly destructive. And you probably have seen this to some extent. Certainly in ministry, I can think of numerous people over the years with whom I have had contact in the church to just choose one who is representative. I'll tell you about Betty. And Betty was a woman who was constantly evaluated her life in relation to other people. It was the only thing that she had eyes for. And so if she was talking with someone and she felt like, oh, you were, you knew the Bible better or you were having better times of devotion, then she was failing and her relationship with God was compromised. But if she was hanging out with you and she saw your kids and she thought, oh, my kids are better than their kids, or she thought that she was somehow serving in a greater capacity than you, she was great. My relationship with God is fantastic. And so, as you might expect, Betty was miserable most of the time because her world existed in this, essentially, this sphere of competition in which she was always weighing herself against other people and evaluating her standing in that way. And because she was jealous, because she saw people, you know, she, she didn't love people, she wasn't entering into community by which she might actually learn and be improved or help to improve others, it was all about her standing. And it emptied her. And being empty, she had nothing to give to community. Nothing to give. And that, in turn, then became so destructive to everyone who was around her. So the first selfish characteristic that thwarts community is jealousy. Now the second is certainly related, but is something of a progression. And for the second, look with me at verse 9. Moses says to Korah, Is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord and to stand before the congregation to minister to them? See? What it, Korah has actually been privileged. He's actually already been set apart as a priest of God. And Moses says, is that not enough for you? Do you have to be number one? Yeah, it's not enough for Korah. He's been blessed. He's been privileged. He's been set apart from the people for special tasks. And yet he's not satisfied. And his dissatisfaction fuels the fire of, the, of what works against community. Now the third characteristic is really a uh, it's a terribly dangerous one. And one of the reasons that we're walking through number 16 is that we have a fierce commitment to growing in community. And what that requires is that you recognize when someone is being selfish and working against community. And the only way you're going to recognize that is if you actually are tuned in to some of the things that are going on in number 16. We see jealousy, which leads to disconsent, or uh, discontent, which leads to our third characteristic, which is very dangerous. It's a changing of the story. The story changes to suit the needs of those who are discontent. Discontent. Look at verse 13. 
Moses has demanded that Dathan and Abiram present themselves. They refuse. And their reply to Moses is this. Is it a small thing that you have brought us out out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness, that you must also make yourself a prince over us? Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us the inheritance of fields and vineyards. Do you recognize how the story has changed? You brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey. Where have they come from? Slavery in Egypt. Not a situation flowing with milk and honey. They're painting the past much better than it actually was. Why has Moses brought them out? To kill us in the wilderness. Absolutely not. Moses has been chosen to lead them to life and to promise. Uh, would you make yourself a prince over us? Moses hasn't made himself any, anything. God has appointed him. And they haven't yet arrived at a land flowing with milk and honey because of their own previous rebellion, which we'll talk about in a moment. Not because of anything that Moses has done. But they've twisted the story. They've twisted the narrative so that it suits their agenda. And when you start seeing narratives being twisted amongst the people of God in community so that it suits a selfish individual agenda, that's very dangerous. And you need to say something. We need to hold that account because it will work nothing but destruction in the life of the community. And that leads us to the fourth selfish characteristic that works against community, which is verse 14. Dathan and Abiram speak up against Moses. They say, will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. What's happening now? So they've gone from changing the story to actually maligning the character of Moses. Are you going to put out the eyes of these men? Moses, we know you're a violent guy. You handle things violently. And so how are you going to handle this? We expect that you're going to do something violent. They malign his character. They paint him in a light that isn't deserved. Again, furthering uh, the case that they're trying to make. And Moses prays in response. He says, no, this... He falls down before the Lord, which is the right response. And he says, listen, I haven't taken one donkey. I'm not harmed one of them. He says, this isn't me. And as I said, you know, as this rebellion moves forward, this rebellion ends where any rebellion which is actually against God must end, which is in judgment. And God judges everyone involved. Swallowed up by fire, swallowed up by the earth. And yet, after that occurs, we see the fifth aspect of selfishness as it corrupts the growth of community. What is really remarkable is, you know, they have all these censers which burn incense before the Lord, the priest would carry as a, as a smoke offering. And after this has occurred, they gather up the 250 censers that were holding fire, and they, they smelt them. They turn them into a covering for the altar in the tabernacle. And they do this as a reminder of what happens when you rebel against the Lord. They do this as a reminder of what happens when, when God's people are not committed to the community that they've been called to. How nice. I mean, just so we're all on the same page, right? The rebellion has occurred. God has judged it in death for everyone. And they have made a reminder that no one should be engaged in this kind of rebellion. And then we come to verse 41. But on the next day, all the congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and against Aaron, saying, You have killed the people of the Lord. 
Remarkable, isn't it? The next day, has nothing been learned? Again, they take up the same false narrative. And this is the fifth characteristic of selfishness as it corrupts the growth of community, which is it's contagious. It's like a virus that spreads, corrupting the community. And that's why any group of people of God have to be serious about the nature of what it is and in dealing with it. The jealousy and the discontent, the changing of the story, all come to the fore again. They blame Moses and Aaron for killing the people of the Lord. But Moses has it right in verse 11 all along. He said, listen, this rebellion is not against me or Aaron. It's not against the leadership of Israel. In verse 11, Moses says, Therefore it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. We see here in this story, amazingly clearly, the community is absolutely imperiled by selfishness. Selfishness that becomes jealousy, that becomes discontent, that becomes changing the story, that becomes maligning other people's characters, and ultimately becomes contagious. And probably everyone can think of a situation in which this has occurred in a family, or in a business, or in a church that you've been in. And so we recognize kind of the traits of this. We've done some, shall we say, diagnostic work, going through the passage, evaluating these traits, but where does it come from? Right? Israel comes out of being saved through the Red Sea, praising and worshiping the Lord. Why does that praise and worship always devolve into this? Right? We could almost plop down in any part of Scripture, and it's, the story is always going in this direction. Rebellion against the Lord. Lack of trust. Moving in a direction away from His mission. And that indeed is what's happening uh, before us. One of the important aspects to understanding the story in Numbers 16 is just before in Numbers 13, we have um, Israel coming up on the promised land, the land that God promised to take them to. And as they're on the borders of Canaan, they send out 12 spies to spy out the land. And the spies come back and two say, yes, we can go take it. But 10 of the spies say, no, those people are scary and they're more powerful than us, and this is a fool's errand, and we're in big trouble. And the people choose to believe the ten spies. Right After God has rescued them in fantastic and miraculous ways, they believe the ten spies rather than trusting in the Lord. And when they make that decision, what they're saying is, God, we don't care why you saved us. We don't care what your mission for us is. We care about our own agenda, our own safety, our own protection. And in that, they give up the mission of God that they have been assigned to go forward and to reveal His glory and to take the land that He's promised to them. And in giving that up, they are left without mission. And when you are left without mission, when you are not accepting a mission that's assigned to you from something outside, particularly in Christianity, God's mission itself, then you are left to yourself to decide your own mission. And if you're deciding your own mission in life, it will inevitably be selfish because you are the only compass point to decide that mission. And it will become a place of vanity and hopelessness and frustration and disappointment. Moses and Aaron actually show us a different way. You know, the most surprising aspect of the entire passage for me is, is how Moses and Aaron... Um, 
continually go to bat for the people over and over again. You know, there's a sense, if you've ever been in leadership and frustrated by people, there's a sense in which you say, okay, I'm out, my hands are washed. Let what's going to be done, going to be done. And yet at the end of our passage, when God says, I am, my wrath is going out amongst us people, because that's where this road ends. The road of rebellion against God, where you say, I don't care, God, about the mission that you have. I care about my own self-protection, and the life that I want to live always leads in destruction, to destruction. It's the place that always ends. And you have Moses and Aaron walking in the opposite direction. Moses says, Aaron, grab a censer, get out there. You're going to stand between the living and the dead. And Aaron's intercession, his offer of atonement on behalf of the people, is the only thing that prevents the spread of the plague. When death was that just ending, they interrupt it. And they're foreshadowing Jesus, but Jesus is so much sweeter. And this Aaron stands between death and life. Jesus becomes death so that you could have life. In much bigger ways than we're looking at in number 16. Jesus enters into the grave and surrenders himself in complete selflessness. Why? So that his community could be one. So that his bride might be made beautiful. So that you would have abundant life now and life in the age to come. Jesus understand fully what it meant to participate in God's mission and did not falter to the right or to the left. As we decide to participate in God's mission, as we commit ourselves to that, we have to recognize that that mission is carried out by the community into which he has called us. We labor side by side in that endeavor. And as we do so, we become the aroma of life to those who would be redeemed. Like Aaron, we stand between death and life. And as we're faithful to Jesus, we extend his offer of life. How will that look for you? Are you actually going to engage that mission? There are innumerable ways, but let me throw out one suggestion. Perhaps on October 19th, on Saturday afternoon, you want to join us as we go to one of the apartment complexes in Dallas where refugees are being housed. Any city, major city in the United States is routinely housing refugees, and you never know about them and you never see them because they're typically put in one spot and your paths don't cross. We want to go there and we want to love and extend friendship and tell them about Jesus and be the fragrance of life to those who are here. So I hope you join us on the 19th. That's on the city and you can sign up there. But even if that doesn't work out for you, go forward this week and ask, really, how are you being intentional about participating in God's mission? If you are not being intentional, then you are failing. Let's pray. Father, your mission is wondrous and is life, and we thank you for it. And we thank you for the profound selflessness of Jesus. And we ask that you would forgive us for the ways in which our selfishness corrupts the vibrancy of our community. Help us to grow in community. And may our community grow because it is informed and committed to your mission. For they go hand in hand. Father, let it be, um, if we had only community, we would be simply uh, a club. And if we had only mission, we would be terribly individualistic. So let us blend them together in the way that you have intended and 
by so doing, bring great glory to you. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.